This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Tommy Shelby. Tommy is the Caldwell Titcomb Professor of African and African American Studies and of Philosophy at Harvard University. Tommy's research focuses on social and political thought and philosophy of race. He has a new book, which has just been published by Princeton University Press. It's titled The Idea of Prison Abolition. Now, by any reasonable metric, prisons, as they exist in the United States and in many other countries, are simply normatively unacceptable. Now, what's the proper response to this, though? Can prisons and the practices surrounding incarceration feasibly be reformed? Or should we rather abolish the entire enterprise of incarceration? Now, if the latter, well, then what? And if the former, what are the necessary reforms? Now, in his book, The Idea of Prison Abolition, Tommy Shelby undertakes a systematic and critical examination of the arguments in favor of abolishing prisons. Although he ultimately rejects abolitionism as a philosophical position, he builds from the abolitionist program's crucial insights his own positive view of what it would take to create a prison and incarceration system that would be consistent with justice. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about, but we'll begin, as we normally do, with our guest. Hello, Tommy. How are you? I'm good, Bob. So great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, well, thank you for writing the book. It was a real uh, joy to read. I mean, joy to read is a little bit weird. (laughs) It was a really, really cool book to read, and uh, I highly recommend it. Um, So, you know, these interviews begin usually with a little bit uh, about the author. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure, I can say a bit. Um, So I was born in Jacksonville, Florida. Well, not exactly. Actually, strictly speaking, I was born in in rural uh, southwest Georgia in a, a very small town. Um, of Vienna, Georgia, as they would call it. And, but mostly raised in Jacksonville, Florida. And I had a sort of small stint in uh, my teenage years in Los Angeles. So partly raised there, but mostly in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm the oldest of, of six, um, mostly raised by my mother. And I'm a first-generation college student. Um, neither my mother or father went to college and I went to Florida A&M University, which is a historically black university in mm-hmm. Tallahassee, Florida. And, um, you know, it was really there that I first encountered philosophy as a discipline. I actually had never heard of the philosophy <laughs> before I got to <laughs> college. Uh, I might've heard the word, but I had no idea what it was or as a discipline. And, you know, I kind of found my way to it a little 
haphazardly, you know, being a, a first-gen student, you, you tend to be, most of us anyway, tend to be fairly practical about being in college. And you think of it as an opportunity to to get skills and credentials that will enable you to get a job. And I certainly approached it that way in my first year. Started out in the, the School of Business and Industry there, which was very popular and had the, the great option of a paid internship every summer, um, which mm. is very attractive from my point of view. But I, after my first year of taking classes in business administration and accounting, I just sort of found it just, just intolerably boring and um, couldn't really see myself sticking with it, you know, for many, many years, decades of my life kind of working <laughs> in that domain and sort of felt like I'd really need to find something that I think would kind of keep my interest, keep me excited, not too bored you know, over the, the course of a life. And so I just started taking all sorts of courses. Um, and that included sociology and psychology, courses in religion. And it was really the courses in religion that led me to to philosophy. The two courses, one on the on world religions and another on the history of the New Testament. And what, what was striking about it is I had two different professors and they both suggested to me after reading papers by me, that I consider philosophy um, rather than religion as something to study because they thought that it would it would suit me, hmm. and um, and so I did. My first two philosophy classes was one was in logic, and one was in political philosophy, and they had a huge impact on me and it pretty much sold me <laughs> on on <laughs> philosophy. Uh, the, the the logic was really important and in. in uh, I hadn't really thought that much about the importance of reasoning well, you know, and, you know, you often had the sense that it was important to to believe true things, of course. And sometimes, but what I kind of got from logic was, you know, it's not just believing true things or starting with true things. You can start with true things and end up with false things if you reason poorly. And sort of thinking about logic helped me to kind of appreciate the importance of that, of that truth. And the discipline of trying to reason my best. No doubt I make many mistakes and many fallacious inferences, <laughs> but I at least <laughs> try, you know. <laughs> um, and the political philosophy course was hugely influential as well. It was one of those courses that probably now people wouldn't teach it this way, but maybe you and I were taught it this way. Um, a kind of big five course where you read Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, Marx, and Mill. And that's how mm. I was introduced to philosophy. And it was the first time I ever encountered Marx as a, as a writer or in any, in any way. And it had a huge, huge impact on me. And I wanted to, to study Marx and Marxism, uh, which I did go on to do to some extent when I went to grad school at, at Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh. And, you know, and there I took all kinds of courses uh, and it was, you know, transformative in so many ways. Um, and I did write a dissertation on, on Marxism, on Marxism and, and metaethics, as a matter of fact, it was mostly a dissertation trying to grapple with the thought that uh, you know Marx sometimes suggests that he thinks of morality or at least moral criticism of society as a kind of ideological enterprise where he meant that as something bad. <laughs> and right. um, <laughs> and um, I just I find it such an intriguing thought and 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 also trying to figure out well what would that mean for the kind of critique of political economy he was offering 
that he would be so critical of morality and so critical of the utopian socialists who also seemed very critical, who, who drew on morality to do to give critiques, but he saw himself as doing kind of scientific critique. So that dissertation, um, some of the actually, some of the things that come out that come out in, in the book, as we will probably get to in due course, but some of those ideas are kind of resurfacing in my um, thinking through the question of, of, of abolition. But I sort of made a, a turn away from writing about those things um, when I first got into profession. My first job was at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I did go there to, to you know, I, I applied to that job as a person writing about Marx. But I, I got extremely interested in debates in philosophy of race and racism and thinking about the history of black political thought while I was there and started writing kind of largely on those topics and, and, and less and less about Marxism, though the Marx was sort of still influencing how I thought about things. I was writing less about it directly. Um, and that kind of led me, you know, working on those topics led me to uh, apply for a, a job at, at Harvard, uh, where at the time, uh, Cornell West and Anthony Appiah when, uh, at what was then the Afro-American studies, um, department, now the African and African-American studies department, um, they were both teaching there and my work was turning increasingly in their direction toward the things they, they had been preoccupied with, at least certain parts of their careers. And I was very lucky to to be offered a, a job and came to Harvard in, in 2000. And, you know, I mostly that that decision came, what came with that decision was a, a sort of commitment to doing work in philosophy that intersects with questions in black studies broadly conceived. And a lot of the things I've written, certainly the, the, the monographs, but even a number of the articles are kind of working at the intersection of philosophy and African-American studies or philosophy and Africana studies broadly. And that's mostly what I do now in the book. This book too kind of emerges from thinking philosophically about aspects of black life and black thought. And in this case, in particular, how to think about the place of prisons in our lives and where we ought to, how we ought to think about the, the place of prisons in our lives and whether we should have um, much more skepticism about that practice than we often do. So that's that's currently where I where I sit. Well, fabulous. Can I can I just ask a, a real quick maybe? Well, what I hope is a real quick question. Um, so I'm just curious about um, uh, one element of your thinking, as I've been following it over the past twenty years. Um, so you were. Um, you're more sympathetic to a kind of Rawlsian liberalism <laughs> uh, than w- what I've just learned about your background might have led me to expect. Um, can you say something quick about that? That And this, it comes out in the book in various places as well. And in your previous book. Sure. I can, I can try. I'm, I mean, in some ways it sprang right from the work I was doing in my dissertation as I came to think that, the attempt to, to offer a, you know, a, a fully scientific critique of capitalist civilization wasn't really a viable position and that you, you needed to marry that scientific approach to understanding history and society with, you know, systematic moral reflection and maybe even theorizing about um, what justice requires, what freedom means and the like. And 
what I found was the work that was being done in you know broadly liberal egalitarian political philosophy um, had a, a level of sophistication when it comes to to, to providing systematic normative arguments for, mm-hmm. for moral principles. And, you know, I was kind of led to that by, you know, one of my heroes really is, is um, G.A. Cohen, whose sure. work I studied, you know, very carefully when I was in graduate school as I was working on my dissertation. And, you know, he moved himself in some ways from after writing his the book, the book that kind of made his name, Karl Marx's Theory of History, to doing much more systematic engagement with moral questions and, and engaging in, a, in, a, in sometimes at great length and depth with, um, with liberal thinkers or sometimes even with libertarian thinkers like Nozick. And, right. you know, I found that extremely productive and thought, you know, especially where you could no longer have the confidence, as I think many Marxists might have had in, in, in earlier eras, that you know, capitalism was kind of coming apart and, you know, we'd be all in its ruin soon enough trying to figure out what to do next. <laughs> um, but as that seemed less and less to be true, <laughs> um, uh, the need for a, a more systematic critique of capitalist society and to be able to articulate a set of ideals by which to evaluate that form of life seemed to seem so important. So, you know, you know, in Rawls, uh, you know, I, you know, obviously a huge figure in our field and, you know, has lots to say. One of the things I I really liked about his approach was the way in which he would take questions of political economy and, um, you know, be very open to the form of political economy that uh, a just society should inhabit, if you like. Right. And, uh, And by thinking about, well, what what form of political economy is really compatible with uh, just principles and leaving it rather open, whether that be, you know, some form of socialism. And he himself probably didn't necessarily prefer, at least not for the United States, but uh, he allowed that it was something that was open within justice's fairness, his general theory that uh, some form of market socialism, kind of liberal market socialism would be defensible according to his principles. And I've, I've been a- attracted to a view of that sort, even if I might disagree about the details, you know, for some time. So I don't think of that as incompatible with many of my interest in, you know, Marxist and socialist thought, but kind of like where one would probably want to go in light of what we've learned through history mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and ongoing political struggles, but also just what I've learned in reflecting on the importance of systematic moral reflection about the relations that we should try to build um, with one another. Well, fantastic. Um, so let's um, let's talk about the book. Um, and I want to begin with with the background. Um, so I, I think it's uh, I think it's safe to proceed from the premise that nobody uh, should should advocate the status quo with respect to incarceration and practices uh, surrounding imprisonment, um, at least in the United States, but in lots of other places as well. Um, now, can you set up the central issues 
the sort of the, what's going on in the background that leads up to the book, um, particularly the debates uh, between sort of two philosophical responses to the fundamental um, normative unacceptability of the, the, the status quo. Um, you know, the prison abolitionist versus the prison reformer. Can you set, can you put that background um, debate in place for us before we get into some of the specifics of your analysis? Sure, sure. Let me try. Um, I should probably start by saying that, you know, I kind of come into this issue by thinking about the problem of, of mass incarceration in the United States. And in my previous book, Dark Ghettos, I spent some time thinking about that, that issue and suggested there some kinds of reforms I think that will be necessary in the, in the, in the near term um, at a minimum. I was aware at that time, uh, that was 2016, I published that book. I was aware at that time that there was an abolitionist critique, a, a more radical position that didn't just ask for sort of fundamental reform in the criminal justice system, but was really asking us to rethink whether we should be relying on prisons at all to uh, control, reduce harmful wrongdoing that's sometimes called crime. And a lot of people whom I greatly respect, uh, including Angela Davis, maybe we'll talk about her in a bit, mm -hmm. um, were really highly critical of criminal justice reform as a kind of project and, and they were calling for abolition instead and often would position themselves as abolitionists as kind of hostile to a reform framework for thinking about the problems that the prison represents. As you started out, many people now, even many people who are rather conservative, would accept that there are many things that are objectionable about the criminal justice system as we know it in the United States. But... Um, you know, Davis and other like-minded abolitionists were really calling on us to think a little bit more deeply at a, at a more fundamental level about what the problem might be. Um, and so I really felt like I needed to decide for myself, you know, whether a posture or reform, which I had articulated in, in Dark Ghettos, even a kind of radical reform position, was that really sufficient for what justice um, requires? So in a lot of ways, the the, the project is driven by a kind of, uh, you know, might seem weird to say a kind of curiosity, but I think it's probably true <laughs> that it is by a kind of curiosity um, and, a, and a reflection uh, about certain practical realities that, that face us now and just trying to figure out, well, what's the right stance for someone with the principles that I take myself to be committed to, what stance should you take toward the prison system, toward the practice of incarceration? And the abolitionist, I mean, I should probably say they are coming a variety of stripes. Right. Um, it's not an ideologically cohesive movement, um, the, as with, that's not a criticism. You know, many social movements have people who fly under its banner, who have a, a range of philosophical positions. So that's true in this domain too. They're kind of, there's an affinity amongst abolitionists, but they, they have a range of, a range of views. Um, and I don't try to take up every variant 
there are, there are some variants of abolition that I just don't find as, as compelling or as interesting. And so I say much less about them and focus on the, the, the version that I find the, the most, the biggest challenge to things that I, that I think, or at least, at least used to think. Um, and on that sort of view, you know, it's kind of could be cap, encapsulated by maybe two broad claims. Good. So on the one hand, there's the view that imprisonment is uh, a sort of immoral and ineffective way to respond to harmful wrongdoing. And it includes a practical call to do away with the practice because of its uh, immorality and ineffectiveness. And then there's a second claim that suggests that it is uh, the view that our fundamental political aim should not be to reform prisons, which many abolitionists think really only legitimizes uh, a practice that's unjust, practice of imprisonment, but rather our fundamental aim should be to radically transform society itself so that prisons are no longer necessary, so they aren't needed to try to control crime. So the, the form of abolition I'm interested in is usually committed to those two those mm. two claims. And what I do is I, I try to approach the subject by uh, um, trying to answer two, two questions that I think aren't always distinguished in the abolitionist literature, but I think they're important to keep, keep separate. Um, the first question is something like, you know, can the practice of imprisonment be justified despite existing structural injustices? Or should the use of prisons be discontinued? whether that be wholly or in part, until somehow these injustices are rectified. So that's, that's really a question about, you know, what we should do now. It's a question about our immediate aims. You know, we're you know, faced with uh, a range of social injustices around race and class and gender and other things. And that, uh, in many ways, uh, disrupts the fair function of a criminal justice system that can lead to over-incarceration and many abuses within the prison system. And so you, you might uh, want to be thinking about, well, what should you do because what should you do in light of that? Should you, you know, stop the use of prisons now until we can kind of fix some of those things or should you partially stop it? So that's, that's the first kind of question. Mm-hmm. And then there's a kind of a, a broader question, maybe somewhat more philosophical and, in that of could a fully just society contain prisons, right? Or maybe put it somewhat differently, uh, is the practice of imprisonment ever compatible with justice? So that's a question about our long-term goals, about our fundamental aspirations. And, you know, that, and a lot of the book takes up that question, the sort of question of, uh, you know, if you, in our vision of what a just society would be, is that a vision where um, prisons would have any place? Or is it really kind of a sign that the society is failing with respect to justice, that it has the practice of imprisonment? And that's a lot of the book is trying to think through that, through that question. So that's the basic, the basic framing of the book is to, is to try to answer those two questions. Well, great. Um, so the, your, your analysis, um, at least a good deal of it, 
um, begins from within uh, a tradition of black radical political thought. And one of your main interlocutors is, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Angela Davis and uh, the thesis that prisons are obsolete and need to be abolished um, and her version of, of or her arguments uh, for those conclusions. Um, now, one of the um, things that you're keen to explore, I take it, is um, a uh, a a premise that often figures often explicitly uh, in some of the abolitionist arguments that you're engaging with, which is that there's some deeply rooted similarity, um, normatively speaking, historically, genealogically, <laughs> between contemporary. Um, practices around incarceration and slavery. Um, And you spend one of your chapters, one of the early chapters of the book, sort of disentangling similarities and differences between slave narratives uh, and first personal, um, you know, diary style accounts of imprisonment. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about um, the similarities and differences that you see and how that figures into the broader arguments? Yeah, um, think about how to approach that. So, so some of the people I'm in in dialogue with here are sort of influenced by the tradition of critical theory, and uh, but also by a tradition of of black radicalism. And there's a sort of you know Davis in particular, but not only her. Um, creates a kind of synthesis between a kind of black radical outlook and a critical theory outlook that we might associate with the Frankfurt School. And so sometimes uh, in the black radical tradition, naturally enough, there's a lot of reflection on uh, the emergence of modern slavery and the transatlantic slave trade and the consequences that flowed from that. And um, sometimes in that broader tradition, there are comparisons made between the practice of imprisonment and the practice of slavery, as you suggested. Um, And I spent a lot of time in the book trying to sort through the range of claims you might make, because lots of different things are said when people invoke slavery in connection to the penal system. And some of those claims... um, take a broadly historical cast, right? It's more about something like the the prison system has its roots in, in slavery or as a legacy of slavery or is inherited from slavery or something of that sort. And so I spent a certain amount of time trying to understand what people were suggesting when they said when they when they said that kind of thing. And part hmm. of it I fully embrace, right? As a kind of genealogical critique you can be offering where the point of the practice of genealogical critique is not so much to, to say or to conclude that the object of critique is something that we should do away with. Sometimes the object of genealogical critique is there to kind of, to kind of shake us out of a certain uh, complacency about the practice, to get us to reevaluate it, to rethink it. And by kind of showing the contingency of the practice, showing that the practice is kind of rooted in power relations, maybe even forms of domination, um, that it wouldn't it wouldn't have emerged or emerged in tandem with various forms of group-based oppression, 
can lead us to to reevaluate the practice and ask ourselves, really, is this a practice we should really embrace and really endorse, or should we should we rethink it? And so there's a way in which gene, the genealogical critique, uh, I think, is 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 really important, and and I embrace it, which is like this is an extremely harmful practice, can be quite destructive for the individuals who are in prison and often for their families and friends, and it's the kind of thing that we shouldn't be complacent about. It's the kind of thing that we should always be reflecting on and asking ourselves, do we really need to do this? Or could it, could it be done in a rather different way? Hmm. And so that part of the genealogical critique, I think, is, is, is right. And, but what I question is where, where, where some people seem to want to go a little bit further than that, because that way of, of casting things, it kind of sets the stage for the, for the question or the questions I, I articulated about should we try to reform the system or should we abolish it? It kind of puts us in a position to take up that inquiry in a kind of productive way by getting us to take the question seriously and not just dismiss it. Right. If you thought that the point was to, to show that through this kind of genealogical critique, what, what is shown is that the practice itself should be done away with because of its origins, I'm somewhat skeptical that you can get there, get where you want to get to in that way. Um, part of it is, I think, maybe I'll make, maybe try to make three quick points. Yeah. Um, part of what's happening there is what you have is the, the range of disadvantages that people of African descent currently suffer because of slavery and its aftermath. So you can have people who are disadvantaged in a range of different ways, um, not just sort of economically, but educationally. There are ways in which the the culture has been shaped by slavery and its fall and what came in its wake. Um, The very identities of many Blacks in the diaspora have been shaped by that experience. And so um, there's a a way in which there there is a a huge legacy of, of slavery that puts those peoples makes them vulnerable to incarceration and to abuse by police and by abuse by correctional officers because of, because of that. But that doesn't yet tell you what should be the object of reform or abolition, right? Should you be trying to do away with the prison system, which also might be a release mass incarceration might be also a legacy of, of slavery or whether you should be trying to, change the social conditions that make Mm. people of African descent vulnerable to being incarcerated at such high numbers. Um, So that's one point. Uh, Another point is, uh, you know, I think that, you know, there are many practices that we, we inherit um, that as human beings inherit from, from the past, right there. And, some of the practices we, we do better without. <laughs> some of them have many problems, but there's something valuable in them that makes it makes it worth holding on to them and trying to do away with the bad parts and keep the good. Um, and it's not clear to me that by, at least not by simply offering a genealogical account that you can show that uh, a, a practice that is inherited from an unjust past is one that we should do away with as opposed to try try to fix. And um, 
I think that's a kind of limit in that way of arguing about things is to is to try to show through an unsavory history that the practice uh, is not worth worth preserving. And I try to to draw this out a little bit by actually making some comparisons to the way Marx handles capitalism. And I think you know you know there's a way in which Marx has a kind of tragic sensibility about. Right. Yeah. Capitalism. Right. And it's it's like, you know, the new form of life. You know, it it it's it's born out of the, the old. Right. It's not. It's not. It's not a picture of, the the old form of society completely collapsing and then a whole new thing being built up. It's an idea that the, the 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 free form of social life, that we should embrace, and build upon is one that will emerge, out out of. Um, he sometimes would say the womb of the old, <laughs> but yeah, right. the ruins of the old. He put it like that, um, and and that there's an expectation that some of the practices that were forged under highly unjust conditions will be ones that 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 we would want to keep, um, and that includes um, certain ways of organizing labor, so that it's more more efficient. Um, that that might include even um, the state in some form, um, though it functions under, so he would say, under a capitalist regime uh, in a way that just advances the interest of the, uh, the bourgeois elite. But it could be turned to the benefit of the, the great masses of workers if it were in the right hands and, and structured in a democratic way. So I don't hmm. think it's out of step with broadly Marx's sensibility to think that prisons could be like that. That is, they could be uh, a, pr- a prisonment could be a practice that he that emerged in uh, as a part of capitalist civilization, at least um, when it's when it's used in a punitive way. We could talk about that m- more if you want. Um, um, but that we might still retain it in some form even if we were ever lucky enough to move beyond uh, a, a capitalist form of political economy. And so I don't think you can show through, in a, in a broadly Marxist or even a broadly um, black radical point of view, that the unsavory origin so discredit a practice that you should, you, that, that you know, you're forced to kind of do away with it. Um, often the right response to it is to try to preserve it in some form as you try to build uh, a society that is free of the injustices that might have given birth to it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Good, good. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the, um, the stuff about uh, punishment and uh, punishment as punitive. Um, so one of the one of the premises of the book, and and um, you sort of lay it down, and then say, oh, "I'm not going to make the argument for this so much here, but just you know, 
accepted as a premise. Um, so you reject retributivism as as a theory of punishment. You you, you don't think that uh, punishment can be justified by appeals to um, the, the claim that some people deserve, uh, um, you know, some kind of uh, punitive um, harm uh, uh, in light of um, you know something that they had done. Um, but nonetheless, you argue that there is, at least in principle, um, a, a successful philosophical defense of the idea that uh, the state can imprison people, um, they can be penalize them uh, uh, by way of imprisonment. Um, so can you spell that? Can you spell that out a little bit? Uh, what's what, what's your view of the justification <laughs> uh, uh, of imprisonment, um, at least in principle? Yeah, let me try to say, I mean, obviously, there's a vast literature on, on, yeah. <laughs> on the topic of uh, what, if anything, could justify punishment. And I, I tried to some extent to try to sidestep some of that debate because um, it is so it is so vast. There's a lot written on it. And mostly in that literature, prison is simply assumed to be the form of punishment in need of defense, though it often is the, the defense isn't given in with specific reference to what imprisonment is like and you know mm-hmm. what are its core features and so on. It's just kind of that's kind of left vague what the punishment is. And so this book is really meant to try to bring the prison into the foreground and as because because you can imagine lots of different kind of penalties you might Im- impose for for harm for wrongdoing and the prison being just just one and we want to ask the question about it specifically. But to take a step back, um so I agree with Davis and many abolitionists, you know, as you as you say, that retributivism is, is not a good way to try to defend the practice of, of imprisonment. Um, and I won't try to explain that exactly. I mean, le- unless you uh, would like me to. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, but I sort of took that as common ground between uh, me and, and abolitionists that that we don't think that you can defend the practice of imprisonment on the grounds that. Um, certain forms of wrongdoing the person deserves to, to suffer or or have some deprivation imposed on them in a way disproportional to um, the badness of their of their act where that where that is thought to be in itself uh, just or in, in, in intrinsically uh, a, a just response to certain kinds of wrongdoing quite apart from any other good social consequence, consequences that might flow from it so I agree with abolitionists about that, but think that we can defend the practice on grounds that it's a, it's a, a, a fair and, and proportionate way to respond to certain forms of serious harmful wrongdoing when the, the point is to try to prevent wrongdoing of that sort. And so that kind of prevention of serious wrongdoing um, through a penal system can take at least three forms. On the one hand, you might be trying to uh, just discourage people from engaging in that kind of activity. And we do this with other penalties where we think, well, we don't want people driving through our neighborhoods at 80 miles per hour, you know, so right. we, we attach penalties to that to discourage people from doing that. And the penalty might not be in incarceration, but it might be, you know, fines, community service, other kinds of things. And um, so 
I take it that many people think even many abolitionists would allow that uh, some penalties can be justified as a way to discourage harmful wrongdoing. And then the question would arise about whether the incarceration could be such a penalty and whether it could have the effect of discouraging um, serious wrongdoing. Another thing you might be trying to do with incarceration is uh, incapacitate people who have shown themselves to be otherwise, um, uh, how to put it, unwilling to respond to these disincentives. Um, uh, Not deterrable. Right. So they're kind of undeterrable people, right? Um, Who, despite the fact that you have a penal regime and you warn people that if you do these things and we catch you, um, this penalty will be imposed, they they do it anyway. And, or they repeatedly do it, and, or you have reason to believe that they will repeatedly do it. And so sometimes you, you do need to incapacitate a person temporarily to prevent harmful wrongdoing to others. So that's another way of, of trying to use incarceration to prevent crime. And then a, the third way would be, you know, sometimes the people, they, they commit wrongs, but they, they could be brought around to, uh, to not committing those wrongs in the future if you provide them with certain counseling services and other kinds of forms of moral reform that, that get them to kind of turn away from that kind of behavior. So some form of rehabilitation, if you like. Now, of course, if you could do that form of rehabilitation outside the context of incarceration, um, that might be, be better. Um, certainly better for them. <laughs> so it's not have to be incarcerated, but sometimes it might be necessary to provide that kind of rehabilitation within the context of confinement. Um, and of course, it, given that you, you're, you already have the practice of imposing um, incarceration as a penalty to, to discourage crime and sometimes as a way to in- incapacitate people who are an imminent threat to others, while you have them confined, it would make sense to me. And I think, um, I think you can justify uh, in-prison services that are forms of rehabilitation um, because eventually you would like to, if at all possible, release them back into the public as, um, as equal citizens. So the way I think about uh, the prison and, and imprisonment as a practice is as a way to prevent serious harmful wrongdoing to others by way of deterrence, incapacitation, and or rehabilitation is the way I tend to, to think about it. I could say more if you like, but that's the, that's the broad outlines of the picture. No, no, that's that that's that's great. That really um, sort of puts things in, in perspective. Um, just a quick follow up, though. Um, uh, maybe this is the beginning of a um, uh, the beginning of a response to your 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 view about uh, what a justified set of practices around incarceration might look like. Um, that that the abolitionist could avail him or herself of. Um, are you concerned that um, uh, in a society uh, such as the United States, I think um, very likely is, or at least it seems to me that such as the United States is, that seems to be so into retributive punishment (laughs) that that the very idea uh, of um, – 
getting people what they deserve when they do bad things. And even the idea that um, that a little bit of disproportionality is a good thing seems to me so prevalent in society. Does this seem to be a problem? You know, does this present a, a special problem for your kind of view that your reconceptualization of what a justified set of practices around imprisonment and incarceration seems so far from uh, what strikes me as um, just the the zeitgeist that that prevails around the country uh, about uh, the the existing institutions and the practices and the enforcing mechanisms and the policing and all the rest does that create a problem? Yeah, it's certainly worrisome. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't deny that. Uh, I, I agree that um, you know retributive ideas are widespread and um, and many people even many people who would defend a punishment on other grounds seem attracted to some version of it. And so you have a kind of thing circulating in the broader public culture, a set of ideas like this. And so there's always, there's a question like, so um, some people might think that the best justification for this practice is some retributive justification, even though there's an alternative justification of the practice um, that doesn't rely on attributive principles that 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 would actually be an adequate defense of the practice. Should you worry that many people will receive the practice as justified on these other grounds, and that mm. and even worse that because they think it's justified on these other grounds, that might lead them to um, be more punitive than is really uh, required. Right. Uh, though there are people who try to argue that. Um, the other way, that is that uh, there are people who might argue that once you really take into account what retributivism requires, you will see that these extremely long sentences that are imposed in the United States, which is not really characteristic of Western Europe and other places, um, that they're really disproportionate and so really out of step with what retributivism requires. But, it, but suppose you put that to one side and you were just sort of worried about you know, I'm not sure how to think about it. I mean, part of me says, you know, part of our, our job, not as philosophers, but as citizens, as we debate, you know, what practices should be reformed and how they should be reformed. And we try to think about justification of these practices that we try to move people away from retributive considerations when they're um, defending the practice or embracing the practice. Um, but that it doesn't show that, that the fact that they might embrace a bad justification for a practice that has a good justification wouldn't doesn't lead me to think that so therefore we shouldn't engage in the practice because people would receive it or take it that had a bad justification even though it has a good one (laughs) (laughs) i think what we have to do is try to turn those people away and people have done that a number of philosophers you know aaron kelly and others have been writing about this topic and trying to really give a, a kind of full critique of retributivism as a justification for punishment. And I think that's the kind of thing we have to engage in. I think that's important. And it, that, it extends to questioning things that you, you have thought about or interested in around the reliance of religious ideas uh, mm-hmm. in public debate. And because there's, there's no question that part of the power of retributivism is partly because it's, um, it, 
it, it resonates with certain religious traditions and right. um, the the god as per, as as portrayed in some of those religion is is a retributive um, god and so you, you'd have to kind of take those issues up because even if you th- so I, I sometimes w- will say um, even if you thought that there's there's some place for retribution I mean I myself am not sympathetic to that you still have to raise the question of whether the the defense that might say be attractive on secular, I'm sorry, on, um, on religious grounds, uh, might not be a kind of justification you can really offer to your citizens as a public justification for a practice that we're all under. Right. Even if you thought that it was somehow justified in some form. Um, so I, I think that that's the direction I would go in. I do have the worry that you, as you articulated, right. but that's probably the way I would kind of approach it. Good, good. So let's let's shift gears to some of the, um, is it right to call it the po- some of the proposal? <laughs> I was going to say the positive side of the argument. It's not a positive side. We're talking about prisons, right? <laughs> right. Um, but yeah. So let, let's let's shift gears to, to 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 some of the proposals. So you, I was really fascinated by the discussion um, in the book where, where you're you're considering the conceptual possibility. You're, you're willing, uh, and you end the, the particular chapter by saying you're not sure about the economic feasibility of what, you, what you're what you exploring. But um, you propose as a conceptual possibility the introduction of a private nonprofit prison system. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, I, you know, I discussed this over dinner uh, the other night, by the way, with my wife, who's not a philosopher, and she just found it completely... Co- it, totally intriguing uh that we might break the you know the 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 private for-profit prison stuff might be addressed by saying well it could still be private as long as it's non-profit can you tell us about that sure um i mean um i should first say i mean I, i other people have suggested this not philosophers but um a few other people have written about it um um daniel lower wrote about it in the new england journal on criminal and civil confinement about 20 years ago, and there have been a few piece, some 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 journalistic pieces in New York Times and the Boston Globe, but just haven't really been they haven't really been fully elaborated. You also get defenses of this in the juvenile justice domain, where you already have um, nonprofit juvenile detention centers, so that already kind of exists and has been defended in that domain. But it, what it, it hasn't really been extended to the case of adult prisons um, in the context of of a punitive response. Um, so I let me just take a step back a little bit to kind of how I w- was led to thinking about this issue. So, you know, in a lot of abolitionist literature, people see themselves as opposed to the prison industrial complex, as they would describe it. And, you know, certainly this is true of Davis, who sees herself as a- opposed to the prison industrial complex. And there are lots of dimensions to that critique. Uh, obviously, there's a comparison being made to the... Um, uh, uh, mil- military industrial complex and, and, and some of the critiques are, are connected to, to the similarities between them, in particular that they're both both complexes, if you like, are defended on grounds of public, of, of public safety, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some critiques about the, about the use of, of, of a very violent technology or a technology that's at least put to very violent purposes in both in both domains. But what I was interested in in this context was an objection that 
has to do with the relationship between capitalism and prisons. And I wanted to think through what kind of criticism is being offered here, right? I mean, is the criticism um, simply that uh, capitalism is, is grossly unjust and undemocratic and we should do away with it? And, you know, and, and many of the practices that are, uh, you know, enmeshed with it are going to be tainted and and and. and made dysfunctional by the way in which it's connected to capitalism. And I'm sympathetic to some of that. Uh, um, but that seemed to me like mostly a criticism of capitalism didn't really tell us anything special about the prison because, you know, we would, a lot of these things we could say about the, the healthcare system, the education yeah. system, other kinds of things that we would say, yeah, that the capitalism kind of disrupts them in ways and kind of pushes them off their public, their public functions. Um, so I want to think through, is there something special here about the way in which capitalism is connected to um, to the practice of imprisonment? And when I start thinking through it, you know, it seemed to me that most of the, the criticisms were the way in which the practice of imprisonment are connected to um, acquiring uh, financial profit from the, from the practice. Now, some of those objections seem to me not very powerful in the end because it seemed to me, um, you know, they're going to be they're going to be people in a capitalist society, even one that kind of has a broadly social democratic ethos, um, where people will benefit from the wrongdoing of others. Uh, that will be true of, you know. Um, you know, a lot of the, what's happening in the medical sphere, a lot of people, a lot of what, mm-hmm. what happens there is a response to people wrongfully harming others. And sometimes people benefit from that fact. Um, and sometimes appropriately so. They are appropriately compensated for providing that kind of service. But there seem to be some kind of deeper worries about how profit can disrupt the system, partly by providing perverse incentives to lock up more people as a way to make money to exacerbate the crime problem so as to keep the business going, you know. Right. Um, so there are real worries like that. There's also just worries about transparency and accountability. Is there a way really of putting in appropriate accountability measures to keep the practice focused on its legitimate functions and not and not be distorted? Maybe it's hard to do that. And it's just a general distrust of capitalist firms in the criminal justice system, there are lots of reasons to just be worried about their playing too big a role there. I think it's un- unavoidable in a in a, a, a capitalist society that there are going to be a role there because so many um, goods and services provided by for profit firms. So there's, you, I think, I think you you can't completely divorce that right. from the practice, but you might be able to limit the the inroads of capitalism in that in that sphere if you allowed. Um, some nonprofit organizations to play significant roles in it. And so I kind of want to think through, I mean, it already happens right. in through mostly religious institutions. So many religious institutions, especially the Catholic churches, are heavily involved in the prisons, um, providing various educational um, and um, sometimes uh, rehabilitative kind of services as a nonprofit institution operating within the prison. And I thought here is, could you imagine other kinds of institutions um, that are not religious playing that kind of role? It may be a more expansive role, a role where some of the um, 
some of the work that's being done, say, by correctional officers and prison administrators, some of that work is also done by em- employees of a, of, a non, of a nonprofit as a way to remove mm-hmm. the profit and the, 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 the for-profit incentive, which seems to be the main concern, the way in which that's kind of disruptive. Um, and it seemed to me that you could defend it. Now, I wouldn't defend it under, I, I wouldn't say that the fully just society would have this kind of nonprofits right. playing this role. But I'm sort of thinking of this, and as I said, the first question I was trying to address, what do we do now? So here we are, we find ourselves with like many injustices that are hard to rectify. And if we could rectify them, it's going to take a while. What do we do now? And it did seem to me that at finding space for nonprofit organizations to pick up some of these roles, whether that's educational, therapeutic, vocational, or even to some extent providing kind of security and helping with um, uh, food preparation and other kinds of things of that mm-hmm. sort, that that would make uh, the prisons considerably more more humane and more functional if we could if we could do that. Now it may be hard to do, and maybe it can't be done. Maybe it just maybe the 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 prison, the for profit prison lobby is just too powerful, or maybe the the politicians who you'd have to get to agree to to um, accept your bid for that role, uh, they just wouldn't go for it because they're too corrupt or whatnot. But it did seem to me that, that it's at least a principled, defensible way of responding to our current situation as we try to improve the lives of the imprisoned. And um, have and, and create greater confidence uh, in the public and, and the families of them prison that their 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 loved ones will will not be mistreated inside. So that that was the reason, kind of why why I was led to that that position. Great. Well, Tommy, you've been very generous with your time, and we've really only scratched the surface. This is, um, you know, lots of lots of arguments uh, um, uh, in the book uh, are, are are gonna will await the reader. Um, so, uh, but I wanted to make sure we, we picked up on on some of the themes that we were just getting to um, in your final chapter. Um, you return, uh, you know, to in, in part where the book begins, to some methodological issues and some issues about um, how we, as philosophers and social theorists, might, you know, might approach a. a, a um, uh, a an unjust uh, um, uh, set of conditions that seem uh, to prevail in society, um, and you take up in that last chapter some of the issues that um, are discussed under the heading in philosophy and political philosophy uh, about ideal versus non-ideal theory, and particularly you're concerned to tease out two different senses of utopianism. Um, um, and you want to separate out sort of, uh, you know, helpful, uh, a helpful kind of utopian thinking uh, uh, from um, some versions of utopianism that you think are, are unhelpful and, and might even be uh, regressive. Um, can you explain a little bit about the, the sort of methodological note that the book ends on? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, there have been, you know, in philosophy, you know, as you as you know, these debates that are kind of broadly methodological that have to do with some people cast it as an ideal versus non-ideal theory. And I've participated in some of those debates and trying to think about the role of, of, of ideal theory in, in political philosophy. Um, and you know, that debate is often like, is 
I think best cast as what's the best method of reflection on these questions of, of justice. And in particular, you know, the way I think of, as we started earlier talking about Rawls, the way that, you know, for him, it's kind of a technical notion within a broader theory. So it's a sort of um, uh, a, a way of proceeding as you're trying to answer. There are many questions of justice. You're trying to answer them all. What's a systematic way of doing that? And he sort of, he is going to have a, a methodological constraint on his theorizing that in the first instance, so you're trying to figure out what are the principles that will govern a, the basic structure of a society to a, assume that the parties in original position will, will choose these principles. Um, well, they will, they will choose the principle on the assumption that uh, there'll be full compliance with the principle. Right. So you get like the full, the fully, the well-ordered society, the fully just society is the one where you have, you know, um, full compliance. But of course, he knows that you're never going to get that. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> there will be non-compliance, a lot of it. And um, <laughs> but he thought, like, to get a systematic approach to it, you need to kind of start there, and then you could kind of ask questions. Okay, so now, as you now want to theorize, what principles should guide us as we respond to injustice, respond to the fact of, of non-compliance? And and there we would we would approach that against the background or having figured out what the principles that uh, uh, the principles of ideal theory that will place a kind of constraint on how we and how we respond. So I found that kind of compelling, and and so I don't I never really seen ideal non ideal theory as, as as at odds, but as two parts of trying to come to a, a systematic comprehensive uh, conception of justice. But not everybody agrees. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> um, but I should say you and I agree at least on this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, so many people would like, they, they think ideal theory is, is, you know, maybe ideological in that negative Marxist sense, maybe um, a kind of distraction from um, engaging with the, 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 the present realities that we now, that we now face. Um, right. So, so part of the, what's at issue is that kind of thing, but there's another piece of it that I think sometimes it gets collapsed with that is with, is more of a kind of um, utopian versus realist kind of view, which I think is not exactly the same. And that's a kind of a question of what should we be trying to do when we're doing political theory? Should we be, um, you know, talking about what principles we should, um, we should embrace in a way that's abstracted from the, from features of power and people's recalcitrance and stubbornness and unwillingness to do things that don't Mm -hmm. serve their own interest, you know? Um, So, uh, you know, so that kind of the kind of more utopian thinking where you you imagine, you know, if, if we were to we were motivated appropriately, um, uh, you know, what 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 form of social life would we we what we embrace, or should you rather drop that because we're not going to ever be able to realize that what you what you do is just you you have a kind of feasibility constraint just based on kind of what we're like, what kind of power um, we're going to be faced in trying to change things and move away from this kind of utopian thinking. Um, so I think the kind of two sorts of debates there, I mean, in the, in, in the abolitionist literature, there's uh, a certain amount of unfriendliness toward ideal theory, but, uh, but, but I think friendliness toward utopian thinking in the sense yeah, that right. I just meant. So, so I think that the, some of the utopian dimensions are, uh, are among the most attractive features of the abolitionist stance. Um, I think that it's really important to 
be searching for effective alternatives to the prison. That's a worthwhile thing to be doing, experimenting with other ways, less harmful ways of responding to harmful wrongdoing without relying on the prison. And the utopian thinking of like, we could be better than this, we can do better than this, um, is I think it urges us, motivates us to, to be on the lookout for alternatives and to maybe experiment with some, some ones that might not seem uh, initially promising. And then there's, I think, another dimension I like about the utopian aspect of abolition is that, you know, the importance of trying to create social conditions where prisons aren't um, really needed. I think that's a very right. attractive ideal. It's a kind of regulative, regulative ideal, I suppose, where you say, look, I mean, that's what we sh- our fundamental aspiration should be to try to arrange our social relations in a, in a, in a way where the problem of serious harmful wrongdoing would not be so serious. Maybe it would still exist, but it wouldn't be so serious that we would need to use the practice of incarceration to respond to it. And I think that's a, that's a, a worthy aspiration. Can we do it? I don't know. I'm kind of agnostic on whether we could do it. I think it's worth striving for. So I think that's a very positive utopian dimension to it. Um, I do think there are some limits to it in a way. So while I'm sort of uh, in, in some ways with the utopian socialist against Marx and Engels, who are very critical of the utopian <laughs> socialist, uh, there are some things I think that that Marx and Engels are on the right track about, and I think we we, we want to embrace. In, in particular, I think it's important to do this theorizing in a way that's not too divorced from current scientific knowledge. I think it's really important that we ground our political opinions in, um, in, in the best scientific facts that we have, that we, we have uh, available to us and that that's going to be necessary to make any kind of uh, rational claims about causality uh, and, and it's going to be needed to make any justify our predictions about the future, that we, we have a firm grasp of the way what human beings are like and what societies are like um, or could be like that that be rooted in science. And sometimes in abolitionist literature, there's a, there's great skepticism toward right. the reliance on the social sciences in this domain. And unless, some, unless it kind of, uh, you know, confirms your priors, that's different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, um, but in those cases where it, it might disrupt something that you would, you know, you would like to believe, sometimes people can be a little dismissive of it. Um, and I think there's also, I mean, the, the worry that, uh, maybe, maybe it's that kind of utopianism in a bad sense because it's, it, it, it imagines that um, things like interpersonal violence or moral vice that these wouldn't really arise in a just world. Like if you had if you had a fully just society and you tried to treat uh, substance use disorders rather than punish them, or if you tried to provide um, mental health care for people who are, are struggling with mental health issues um, and you had a just social structure that you really, you wouldn't really expect serious interpersonal violence or really harmful wrongdoing to, to emerge or at least not to be much of a problem. And I'm just not sure about that. I mean, it, there's a kind of, it's a little bit of an article of faith here, I think operating um, maybe even a kind of implicit belief that human dispositions are really radically malleable without providing much evidence to think that that's true. And there is 
evidence to be looked at. There's, there's archaeological evidence and anthropology to look at the violence and, and, and various forms of society and um, as a kind of feature of human social life, that that's a problem. And it may not be something you could just uh, put at the feet of capitalism, for instance. Um, <laughs> and I think that there's a kind of agnosticism that I think is required here as well, because I think that, that I think it's consistent with basic Marxist, Marxist principles where it's really hard to know what human beings will be like under really radically different social conditions. It's really hard to know whether you would see some of the same dispositions and habits of mind that we're so familiar with if we could, could build a, a post-capitalist, free, or more democratic society. I don't know that we know, nor do, right. we, nor do we know um, what technology we might come up with in the, in the interim. And or 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 fail to come up with <laughs> um, right. might make it the case that we still have to rely on on prisons to to handle the the worst offenses. So I think you want a certain balance of utopianism with a certain kind of realism about uh, what human beings are 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 like. And I think in some of the abolitionist literature, the 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 right balance isn't quite isn't quite there. Well, Tommy, that seems like a, a, a good point uh, to end our, our discussion on. Um, uh, thank you so much for joining me uh, uh, for uh, New Books in Philosophy today, Tommy. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me again. I uh, enjoy the, the podcast very much, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, and, you know, the book is really, really fantastic. Let me thank the listeners, though, before we go. So thank you, listeners. Um, you've been joining uh, us f- uh, for our discussion. Um, I've been talking uh, with Tommy Shelby, and we've been talking about uh, his really fabulous new book. It's titled The Idea of Prison Abolition, and it's available now uh, through Princeton University Press. Um, thanks for listening to the podcast and bye for now.